You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. We're going to memorize this. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Go. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. One more time. You got it? All right, because we're not done yet. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Here's the next part. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. To send out laborers into his harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That's pretty good. Are you ready? I'm going to do it all together, then you're going to do it all together. The harvest is plentiful. No. <laughs> the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Ready to go. All right, everybody but Offwell right here got it. So, <laughs> y'all can be seated. That's Luke chapter 10, verse 2. You can go and turn there if you want. Um, That's what we're looking at tonight. And if you were here last week, you know that we're in Luke chapter 9, the very end of it. And this follows it up. In fact, Luke chapter 10, verse 1, it it says, after this, and then it leads into Jesus saying this. It, It says, after this, this is my version here, Jesus, he appointed certain men, or 72 actually, 72 people to, uh, of which he sent out into these cities and these places that he was soon going to visit himself. And then Jesus says to these men exactly what we just memorized. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, earnestly pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, I want to chop this verse up, these, these words up here for a second. This is huge. It says the harvest is plentiful. I, I just want to cast this vision for you on how plentiful the harvest really is. Just looking at Denton, Texas, just looking at UNT, TW, NCTC, I don't know if you realize this, but UNT and TW had uh, the largest enrollments this fall that they've uh, ever had supposedly in their history. UNT had 37,231 people enrolled in the fall. T-Dub had 12,557. NCTC uh, had 5,796. Now, if you add all that up, total number of college students in Denton is 55,584 students. UNT had one of the larger freshman classes they've ever had, 4,663 freshmen. We can go ahead and assume that that number's not quite as big by this point in the semester. (laughs) TWU also had a large class, 2,309 freshmen. TWU had a large class of just new students, freshmen freshmen and transfers together, 4,288. Now, 
It's a generous estimate to say that 10% of the population of college students in Denton is involved or connected to a church. It's generous to say 10%. So it's generous to say that about 5,500 students out of that 55,000 or so students is connected in a church, which means that there's at least 50,000 students in our backyard who are not really walking with Jesus. Like they, they might claim to have a relationship with Jesus. They might have a relationship with Jesus, but at best, they're, they're, they're plateaued. They're probably falling back in that. They're not connected. They're not growing in community. It also means that there's a large number of college students, probably a number so big that it has four zeros on the end of it, a large number of college students that don't know Jesus at all. Now you look at the United States as a whole, there's... Uh, 259 million people in the U.S. and Canada who don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. The number of unchurched people in America would would make the eighth most populous country in the world. Let me say that again. The number of unchurched people in the United States of America would make the eighth most populous country in the world. So you've got like India, China, Indonesia, Brazil, Pakistan, Nigeria, And then you have the unchurched population of the United States. The world as a whole, there's a little under 7.2 billion people in the world. 2.2 billion professing Christians, and that includes Catholics and Protestants. 2.2 billion people who say that they're Christians. 550 million uh, are considered evangelical Christians. We'll come back to those numbers here in a second. But worldwide, there's a total of, uh, depending on which statistics you look at, about 16,000 people groups. Now, let me explain this very quickly. Um, A a people group is a group of people that is linked together by language, ethnicity, culture, location. Um, The reason this is important is back in, I believe it was in the 80s. You know, it used to be prior to the 80s that uh, when we would send out missionaries, we would say, okay, we're sending this person to be a missionary to, let's say, China. So that person was going to go be a missionary to China. But over the years, what people began to realize is that in China, um, there's so many different kinds of people from so many different backgrounds, speaking so many different languages, having so many different cultural practices that you can't go to China and plan to reach all or multiple different kinds of people in China, all the different types of people that there are in China with one method of reaching them. Same message, different methods, those needed. Same is true in the U.S. I mean, you look at the U.S. The South is totally different from the North. The the East is totally different from the West. Like, everything's different from the West. Uh, You know, suburban is different than uh, inner city, and country is really different than everything else. Um, So you have to use different methods. Same message, but different methods. So they started identifying what's called people groups. And so depending on the research, depending on the uh, which which source you're going to for the statistics, there's anywhere from 11 to 12,000 People groups to the upper number would be sixteen uh, to 17,000 people groups in the world. Now, that being said, we're going we're gonna to split those people, people groups into three different categories. You're going to have unreached, unevangelized, and reached. Unreached people groups. Again, look, depending on the statistics you look at, there's anywhere between 6,000 and 7,000 unreached people groups on this planet. And here's what that means. Unreached is a category given to a people group where less than 2% of that population is considered evangelical Christian. So that means there are somewhere between 6,000 and 7,000 people groups on this planet 
where less than 2% of their population is considered evangelical Christian, which means in a lot of cases, 0% is considered evangelical Christian. The number of people that makes up in in total is about 2.9 billion people. That's about 39% of the total world population. Unevangelized people, that's categorized by saying, okay, their, their population and their people group is greater than 2% evangelical Christian, but they're still in large part unreached. So these are unevangelized peoples. There's about 2,800 unevangelized people groups in the world, representing about 900 million people. That's about 17% of the world's total population. And then there's reached peoples. And that category is greater than 2% evangelical Christian or majority Christian population. And the total number of people groups there is 6,857, representing about 3 billion people. The reached population of the world makes up about 40% of the total world population. Now, that doesn't mean that 40% of the world has a personal saving relationship with Jesus. What that does mean, though, is that 40% of the world is made up of people groups where greater than 2% of the population is evangelical Christian, which still isn't much when you think about it. Let's talk about international students for a second. Bring it back to the college world. There's almost one million international students studying in the United States right now. 62% of that number of international students studying in the U.S. are from what's called the 1040 window. Now, if you've never heard of what the 1040, if you've never heard of the 1040 window, let me explain that to you. If you're to look at a map, you've got lines of longitude and lines of latitude. The 1040 window is this window in between 10 degrees latitude, 40 degrees latitude, stretching from West Africa all the way to East Asia. Within that window, within those two lines of latitude, represents the most unreached part of the world. So West Africa through the Middle East into East Asia. 62% of the international students studying in the United States right now are from the 1040 window, the least reached part of the world. UNT has just under 3,000 international students on its campus. TWU has just under 300 international students on its campus. Between the two campuses, you're, you're right at about 140 different countries represented. And here's where I think it gets interesting. Nine out of the 10 most persecuted countries on this planet are represented here at UNT and TWU. There are students at UNT and TW from nine out of the ten most persecuted countries in the world. The only country out of the top ten that's not represented is North Korea, and it's number one. But you've got Somalia, Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Sudan, Iran, Pakistan, Eritrea, Nigeria, all represented at UNT and TWU. Here's what that means. These ten countries are ten of the hardest to access countries in the world for Christians. Ten of the hardest countries for you to get into. Ten of the hardest countries for you to get into and then stay there. Yet, you have access to those countries. I have access to those countries by simply walking across campus. Nine out of the ten countries with the most unreached people groups in the world are represented on your two campuses, UNT and TW. Nine out of the ten most or 10 countries with the most unreached people groups are represented, and some of those countries are represented in great numbers. 
India, China, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, Nigeria, Iran, all in the top 10 with the most unreached people groups, all represented in significant numbers on your campus. Indonesia and Sudan are both represented on your campus, not as insignificant of numbers, but still represented. Laos is the only country, if you don't know where that is, that's in between Thailand, Vietnam, and Cambodia. Laos is the only country, and actually China borders it on the north. Laos is the only country in the top 10 list uh, without students in Denton. But that being said, Laos, even though it's also in the top persecuted countries, and, and it is illegal to proselytize or evangelize there, and it's all but illegal to be a Christian, it's really not that hard of a country to get into. So why, why is it important to talk about this? Why is it important even, let's just focus on internationals for a second. Why is it a big deal to even talk about international students and, and reaching international students? Well, it's a big deal because 40% of the world's 220 heads of state, like presidents, country leaders, 40% of them once studied in the United States. That's almost half. It's a big deal because this almost one million international students that are studying right now in the United States are going to go back home and be leaders in their government, leaders in their countries. But here's what's crazy. 80% of those students will return to their countries having never been invited into an American home. Only 10% of those international students will ever be reached by ministries within the United States. So what do all these statistics mean? I mean, the, the, the stats alone don't mean that the harvest is necessarily plentiful. Because the reality is not everybody's going to respond to the gospel. Not everybody's going to be saved. But when you consider some of the things that God, God's word says, things like uh, 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. All people to be saved. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. John 3.16, For God so loved what? The world. Not the United States. Not just the 2.2 billion who claim to be Christians. The world. All 7.2 that are currently on the planet and everybody that came before us and is coming after us. Romans 10.13 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, so these statistics don't in and of themselves necessarily mean the harvest is plentiful. Because again, not everybody's going to be saved. But based on what scripture says, it leads me to believe that if there are 4 to 5 billion people on earth who have not yet been saved, there's surely got to be a harvest that's plentiful. Even though Jesus said these words 2,000 years ago, they've still got to be true today. So he says, the harvest is plentiful, but... Now, if you've been in overflow for any significant period of time, you, you know that when we come to the word but, we talk about it because it's a significant word. It's one of the smallest words in the English dictionary, but it's had one of the greatest impacts on all of history. The word but's like the stop sign of Scripture. And you can't treat, you can't treat the word but, the stop sign of Scripture, like you... Treat stop, stop signs when you're driving. You pull up to stop signs when you're driving, and what do you do? You check, make sure there's no cops, and you roll right through. <laughs> but let me tell you, and, and you know, it's, it is funny, but let me tell you, it's, it's a serious offense when you do that to Scripture. Because when you don't stop at the word but, you miss what's coming. 
And that's a really dangerous thing. Just like it's dangerous to roll through a stop sign when you're driving, you can get broadsided by a car and die. If you miss what's coming when you see the word but, the stop sign of Scripture, you could get broadsided and die. It's that dangerous. And let me tell you, just uh, this, this, this word is, is great. The word but is great when it comes to your own salvation. We've talked about that. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but game changer. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, you were dead in your sin. You were dead in your transgression. Ephesians 2.4, just a few verses later, says, but God made us alive in Christ. So this word is a really good thing when it comes to your salvation, but this word is detrimental when it comes to the salvation of billions of other people. The harvest is plentiful, but it tells us that just as quickly as we see the harvest is plentiful, it tells us that something is standing in the way of us gathering it. So it says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now let's go back to the world population, 7.2 billion, give or take, 2.2 billion professing Christians, uh, 550 million are considered evangelical Christians. Now, now think about this. 550 million evangelical Christians out of 7.2 billion people on this planet. That's one, if you do the math, I think I did it right. That's one evangelical Christian for every 13 people on the planet. Now think about that for a second. One evangelical Christian for every 13 people on this planet. That means if, if each of us took responsibility for just 13 people, 13 unique people, we could accomplish the evangelization of the world pretty quick. There's 900 churches for every one unreached people group. Think about that. That's crazy. That's a lot of churches for every one unreached people group. I mean, if just one of those churches committed to one of those people groups, can you imagine what might happen? But there's 900 churches for every one unreached people group. There's 78,000 evangelical Christians for every one unreached people group. 78,000 people who claim to be Christians for every one unreached people group. Now, at first glance, you'd look at those numbers, you'd look at those statistics and be like, man, the laborers are not few. We've got plenty of people. But let's look a little bit deeper into those numbers. All the missionaries in the world, you total it up, and this includes Catholic and Protestant 400,000 foreign missionaries. So out of 2.2 billion people who claim Christ, only 400,000 are actually leaving their homes, going to a foreign place, and that's not necessarily, um, you know, leaving the country, but a foreign city even, to be missionaries. Of those 400,000, 309,315 to be exact, which is 77% of the total 400,000 missionaries, are in reached parts of the world. Now you may have missed that. Going back to those three categories, you've got unreached, unevangelized, and reached. Reached is the part of the world that has the most exposure to the gospel, the most Christians. 77% of the foreign missionaries in the world are currently serving in reached parts of the world. Now to some extent that makes sense. Like they, maybe it wasn't the reached part of the world before they all got there, but still, It is interesting to think about 77% of human missionaries are serving in the most reached parts of the world. Unevangelized parts of the world, there's about 20% of those missionaries serving there, 77,000 or so. Then you get to the unreached parts of the world. 
that 2.9 billion people and only 3% of the 400,000 missionaries are serving there, about 13,000 missionaries. The, 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 the number of current unreached people group missionaries compared to the total 2 billion Christians in the world equals the same probability of being in a plane accident. It's like .000005 or something like that. So if you're one of the 2.2 billion Christians, self-professing Christians in the world, the chances of you being a missionary to an unreached people group are just as good as the chances of you being in a plane accident. The ratio of current unreached people group workers to the total unreached world is one missionary for every 216,300 people. Now go back to the stats we looked at earlier where it seems like we, we, we've got a lot of laborers one Christian for every 13 people on the planet. 900 churches for every unreached people group. 78,000 evangelical Christians for every one people group. Yet, as far as people who are actually serving, there's one missionary for every 216,300 unreached people. There's about 4.2 million People currently serving as full-time Christian workers, pastors, ministers, whatever. 95% of them are working within the Christian world. And labor doesn't just come in the form of hands and feet on the ground on foreign soil. It comes in the form of laborers back home laboring to earn the funds to send the hands and feet to the foreign soil. So let's look at this, what Christians earn. Annual income of all church members, and I think this is just the United States. Annual income of all church members is $42 trillion. Annual income of evangelical Christians, like just evangelical Christians, is approximately $7 trillion. So what do they give? The, the amount of money given to any Christian cause is about $700 billion a year. So church members are making about $42 trillion a year. And the amount of money given to any sort of Christian cause is about $700 billion a year. Coincidentally, that's also how much we spend in America on Christmas. Of that $700 billion, only $45 billion of that, which is, I think, 6.4% of that money, $45 billion of that actually goes towards missions. So 6.4% of all that money given, only 6.4% is going to missions. And coincidentally, that's about how much we spend in America on dieting programs. So the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Why are the laborers so few? I'll tell you this, it's not so much that there are so few laborers. I think the stats speak well to that. The laborers aren't few because there's so few laborers. The laborers are few because so few people are choosing to labor for the sake of the gospel. And think about what we've been talking about the last two weeks. It all goes back to those two questions. Two weeks ago, why, why do you call Jesus Lord, Lord, owner of my life, owner of my life, and yet don't do what he says? And last week, why do we say to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go, yet so many of us are not moving at all? It's like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. 
when he famously made the comparison between cheap grace and costly grace. I'm going to read a big chunk here. He said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price. And by the way, as you're, as you're reading this, understand who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was. He was, he was killed uh, in Nazi Germany for being a believer, for pushing for the advancement of the gospel, even within everything that was going on. Costly grace, he says, is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy for which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Listen to this. He says, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man his life. And it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price, scripture says. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. And you know, as I was reading that, it reminded me of something a guy named Viktor Frankl said. He said, the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast should be supplemented by a Statue of Responsibility on the West Coast. Freedom demands responsibility. And listen, I'm afraid that today the church worships at the altar of numbers. I mean, you just watch. Watch Twitter, watch Instagram. Somebody goes to a conference, somebody goes to a worship service, somebody goes to, you know, a a concert, Christian concert, whatever. If there's a big crowd that shows up, it doesn't really matter what actually happened that night. People will still you know, tweet a picture of the big crowd and say, man, God met us here. God showed up tonight. Which in a way, when you think about it, it's true. It's true because they're worshiping the God of numbers. Not the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, not the God who sent Jesus, not the God of the Bible. So if their God is numbers and there were a lot of people there, then absolutely God showed up. Mark Dever in his book, The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, he said, the purpose of too many evangelical churches has fallen from glorifying God to growing larger, assuming that numerical growth, however it's achieved, must glorify God. Let me just tell you, I think in an effort to draw bigger crowds, we've started to preach freedom without responsibility. Cheap grace. When the gospel actually states something completely different. You go to Ephesians chapter 2. In fact, flip there real quick. Ephesians chapter 2. You know, I, I quoted 
the first part of Ephesians 2, 1, and the first part of verse 4, it says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So you were dead in your sin. Then verse 4 says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, made us alive in Christ Jesus. Verse 8 and 9, you should have memorized, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not by works so that no man can boast. Then you get to verse 10. It says, for we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Freedom demands responsibility. Your freedom from sin demands responsibility. You now have a responsibility. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is another example of this. Turn back to that. Verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, gave us the responsibility of now being his ministers of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Freedom from your sin demands responsibility. You are now an ambassador. You are now carrying the same message that sets you free to everybody else who hadn't yet been set free from it. Romans 12.1, you should have this memorized. Paul says, he shifts. He's been talking, first 11 chapters of Romans. He's been talking about the mercy of God, the grace of God, the best, longest, most in-depth explanation of the gospel in Scripture. And then he says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, all 11 chapters that I just wrote, in view of that, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. This is your responsibility in response to the new freedom that you have from sin. We have a lot of massive, quote-unquote, church gatherings, but the result of so many of these gatherings and so many cases is a lot of rhetoric, but not a lot of response. And I think if Jesus was to speak directly to us today, I think he'd say something similar to what he said in Matthew 15, 8, when he quotes Isaiah 29. He says this, these, these people honor, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. The idolatry towards numbers and large crowds has led, uh, has led to a lot of negative things. One result of it is the redefinition of evangelism and missions. These two things have become optional instead of required. Again, it's essentially the proclamation of cheap grace versus costly grace. And cheap grace, as Bonhoeffer says, is the deadly enemy of the church. So Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the Laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Therefore, that word therefore is essentially telling you that whatever happened before it and is happening after that word are significantly linked together. And let me tell you what's interesting. I, I feel like I've heard this text taught a lot. I've taught it before too. I've heard this text taught a lot. Harvest is plentiful, laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I've heard this text so many, preached so many times, but you know what's interesting to me and convicting to me this week is that 
And as many times as I've heard this text taught, not once, not once have we done right then in that moment what this text seems to demand of us. He says, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. Not once have we stopped and done that. He says, pray earnestly. That, that word, pray earnestly, essentially means to, to get on your knees and beg. And, and it implies the willingness to do whatever the Lord ends up saying to do. It's the willingness to go if you are the one he chooses to send. And so tonight, with the remaining time we've got, we're going we're gonna to stop and we're going to pray as earnestly as we know how to God, asking him to send out laborers into his harvest. And, and you know, last time we did this, I, it was a few weeks ago, um, I, I want to just buffer what we're about to do by saying this. I understand there's people in here tonight, this is your first time, uh, I met a few of you tonight coming in, and I'm super stoked, glad that you're here. I do not want to make you feel uncomfortable by uh, splitting us into groups of three here in a second and, and asking you to pray with those groups. So if you're not comfortable with that, I want to challenge you to still get in a group and just um, don't feel pressured to pray. The, the people in the group aren't going to be like, what? what's wrong with you? They're not going to do that at all. Uh, they're going to be glad that you're with them and it'll be a great experience. Um, I understand there's people in here who don't yet know Christ and you've never really prayed before. And so uh, just listen. Um, just listen to the people that are with you praying um, and, and just understand, like, the people around you that you're hearing praying, they're having a conversation with the God of the universe. You get to eavesdrop in on a conversation between a human being and the creator of that human being. And I would just encourage you to listen because it's going to be crazy. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.